0: But what blitzscaling says is, hey, there are circumstances under which your willingness to take on a greater risk is actually a competitive advantage.
1: I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question, what would you do if you were starting today? All right, today on the podcast, I have somebody who wrote a book. You know, when you like find a book and you read it at the right time of your life where it just kind of changes the game, this is where this book falls for me. I was just starting my growth agency. Somehow the book Blitzscaling falls into my lap and it has really changed how we do everything at our growth marketing agency. So I'm lucky enough to have the co author of that book, Chris Ye on today. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Jim. It is a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me in for your audience. Hopefully, they're going to have a good time.
1: Yeah, so I was lucky enough to meet Chris Shoot, maybe three or four weeks ago. Uh, he was kind of have to come out to Seattle or in the Bellevue area. And he did a talk on blitzscaling in front of like 70 different founders. And uh, there was a lot of notepads out, a lot of scribbling, but it was, it was really well received. And I got to do a little Q&A with him. Actually, Chris, like you've probably done so many of those now when it comes to public speaking, do you even think twice about it? Is it natural? Like what advice would you give to people if all of a sudden they find themselves on a stage staring at 80 people like any tips for that?
0: Well, conveniently enough, I actually taught public speaking for a while as well. When I was an undergrad at Stanford, one of the things I did is I took the public speaking program, which is part of the engineering department. And they said at the end of the class, hey, you know, you're pretty good at this. Would you be interested in helping to teach the class? And so I ended up teaching public speaking for about a year at Stanford, toward the end of my Stanford career. So I absolutely have a bunch of good lessons I can impart to people about speaking. The most important one is just know your material, right? The reason that people look comfortable on stage is not because they're making it up as they go along. It's because they know the material. They may not be memorizing it. They may not be reciting it word for word but they feel comfortable with the ideas because they've been living with them for a long time. The other thing of course is ideally you should have an outline, have an idea of which ideas you're going to talk about. And in roughly what order I always tell people never memorize, but do have an outline because that allows you to know, okay, I know that I need to get to this next. I know you need to get to this next is you can sort of waypoint your way through the talk. The final thing is just when it comes to delivery, this is the part that people really focus on. It really comes after organization and content, but delivery is important as well. And that means thinking of your voice as an instrument, not just delivering the same pace and tone and everything else like that. The monotone that you may remember from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Bueller, Bueller, (laughs) right? That's the opposite of what you want to do. Your your voice to vary. Sometimes you might be going up high. Sometimes you might be going down low. You might slow it down or even whisper to get people to really lean in. And so when you treat your voice as an instrument and make it interesting for people, that usually helps as well. So those are some of my very quick public speaking tips.
1: That's pretty good. Yeah, especially holding their interest, but like using your voice as an instrument. I didn't think of that. That's super helpful. Um, I won't make you analyze how you think I did um, or did not do being up there with you. But yeah, man, it was was a fun one. Before we even get into this, could you just give a little background on yourself? Because honestly, man, your pedigree is amazing. It's like Harvard, it's Stanford, everything you've done. But like, what do you say is your background?
0: Yeah, so I usually give people the 90-second biography, which is I was born and grew up in Santa Monica, California, which is one of the reasons I know a little too much about the entertainment industry. I went up to Stanford University for my undergrad. I studied creative writing and product design engineering, so a lot of fun stuff. Also taught public speaking, peer counseling, improvisational comedy, and a variety of other things. I left Stanford. I graduated and started working for D.E. Shaw and Company out on the East Coast very famous company for the fact that Jeff Bezos worked there before he started. That's right. And then from there, I went ahead and got into the start. I, I was there working on startup stuff and I've been in the startup world ever since. Went to HBS, Harvard Business School, graduated class of 2000, then came out to Silicon Valley with one of the companies I'd started. And I've been in Silicon Valley in the startup game ever since. I finally wrote my first book, The Alliance, which came out in 2014 and Blitzscaling, my most famous book, which came out in 2018. And both these books are much, much more famous because I write them with my friend, Reid Hoffman, who is a very famous guy, mostly for being the founder of LinkedIn, but also for being a mega famous investor billionaire type.
1: Blitzscaling is how I know about you. But recently I read The Alliance and that thing is really good. And we're going to get into both of those. And I want you to write another version of The Alliance and the new remote world. So we'll talk about that. But first, like you've written two books with, with Reid Hoffman, who has done some amazing things what have you observed or learned like working with Reed?
0: So, there are things which I would call just Reedisms or Reed like characteristics, part of his mental model that he uses. Some of them are just quirks for him, and some of them are ones I've actively adopted myself. So, there are a couple things. The first is Reed really thinks in frameworks. So, when we talk about these subjects, he's always looking to fit the specific example into a broader set of principles. It probably comes from being a philosophy major. He actually has a master's in philosophy from Oxford University as a Marshall scholar. And philosophers are ultimately systematizers, and he is absolutely a systematizer. It's also the case that he has this incredible love of multitasking. And what it means is not doing two things at once, but making whatever you do serve at least two purposes. So for example, when some friends of his went to him and said, hey, can you host this podcast we're thinking about doing called Masters of Scale? He said, yes. The first reason was to help out his friends who've built an entire company around this called Wait What? But the second was he said, hey, you know, this Masters of Scale thing is gonna be really handy for gathering material that will go into our book, Blitzscaling, because I'm gonna be talking with some of the preeminent entrepreneurs and, and executives in the world. So everything always serves multiple purposes. The third thing is continuous learning and continuous improvement. Reed, as you mentioned, a legendary figure, has accomplished more in his life than just about anyone in the world. And yet every time after he comes off stage, his first question is, hey, what could I have done better? So he's always looking to learn, never believes that he knows everything. And that's an attitude I've tried to really take in myself. The final thing, which came naturally to Reed, but which really helped change my life, was to really think about things and always ask how could this be even bigger? How could this have even greater impact? I think most of us learn to be cautious because we're afraid of failing. And by being cautious and playing it safe, we can avoid failure. But Reed has never been a person who's been afraid to fail. Instead, he's like, you know what? A bigger failure is not daring greatly. So whenever something comes up, ask yourself, how can we make it bigger? How can we make it have an even greater impact?
1: I love the idea of frameworks because it allows it to be a little bit more repeatable. And I remember we said this in the talk and I wrote it down, but even that specific phrase, when you ask somebody, not like, hey, how do you think that went? But saying, what could I have done better really gives a safe opening to give that constructive criticism. I think if you're a CEO, it's hard to get that, which is really cool. However, the last point you just said kind of struck a chord with me because I have this growth marketing agency. I mean, agencies aren't some things that are going to go to be a billion dollar exit, but we're like launching this startup studio. Are we thinking big enough? Any like color or advice? I mean, your whole book kind of answers the question that I'm saying around blitzscaling, but like any advice on how people should be thinking bigger in a controlled way where you're not going to risk the farm?
0: Absolutely. So, when we think bigger usually the reason we don't think bigger is because we're limited by our own resources and you know most of us are not billionaires most of us can't just spin up a gigantic team to do things but paying for things yourself is not the only way to accomplish things in this world in fact partnering using other people's resources getting other people on board with what you're doing as a movement are all ways that you can have a lot greater impact than if you just rely on your own personal resources and in fact in many ways By involving other people into the narrative and movement, you make it even more powerful. So as you're building out this startup studio, what I would say is don't think of it as I'm limited to the resources that I, Jim, happen to have or that I have raised for this particular startup studio. By the way, maybe you can raise larger amounts of money. Maybe you can find somebody to really back this. But the other thing is just to say, listen, It doesn't all have to be within our walls. Are there ways that we can leverage the community? Are there partners that we can bring in that can help us really grow this thing even faster, even more directly than before? So think big means not just think big in terms of if I had a billion dollars, but think big as in terms of who else can I get on my side?
1: Yeah, and I think you hit on a big word there is like leverage to leveraging other people, other partnerships, other audiences to get to that goal when thinking big. Which leads to, if you're going to think big, one of the ways to go about that is this framework of blitzscaling. And so I want to get into this. And like I was reading the book even before your talk, so I have a lot of kind of nuanced questions. But for people that are listening or have been under a rock that are somehow in marketing don't know what blitzscaling is, how do you define that?
0: So we define blitzscaling as a strategy of pursuing growth uh, by prioritizing speed over efficiency in the face of uncertainty. So those are the key factors, growth, speed, efficiency, and uncertainty. And we combine them in an unusual way because usually you don't think about prioritizing speed over efficiency when things are uncertain. You think, hey, things are dangerous, let's slow down, let's be a little more cautious. But what blitzscaling says is, hey, there are circumstances under which your willingness to take on a greater risk is actually a competitive advantage. And the specific instance in which blitzscaling applies is when you have what we call a winner take most market, where growing more rapidly than the competition, winning the market by reaching critical scale first, is going to give you enduring market leadership, some sort of sustainable competitive advantage that will keep you on top and let you print money for decades. That means that there's a huge advantage to winning the market, which means it's worth taking on the additional risk of growing even if it's inefficient, even if it's uncertain.
1: Yeah. And a lot of people when they think blitz scale, like, oh, I'm not a VC backed company, I shouldn't be thinking about blitz scaling. But the truth is, and you articulate this really well, is there's certain phases you could be going at where, hey, speed matters over efficiency because you're launching something, because you're entering a market or you're launching a new product and blitz scaling works. Could you give some more color on that? Like how some non-VC-backed companies should be thinking about incorporating blitzscaling into their strategy.
0: Absolutely. So the techniques of blitzscaling basically say, how do you move faster when speed is really important? And there are a whole variety of reasons why that might be the case. Maybe you're trying to be the first to launch a particular product, or maybe there is a particular tender that some big potential customer has, where if you can finish faster than everyone else, you'll get the business. Or maybe you're a nonprofit where you're looking to have an impact and there's a very important upcoming holiday or something like that where you need to convince people of something before that time happens. In all those cases, if you do not succeed, then it doesn't matter if you succeed later on, right? The impact is just much, much less. And so therefore, it's worth it to invest more, to risk more because the impact can be so great. Again, the only reason to take on more risk is if in fact there is a greater reward. And so you have to look for that reward to be there.
1: The ultimate risk reward kind of balance. I feel like as a business owner, I'm always saying it through capital allocation and these risk reward scenarios. And I'm, I'm very risk adverse. And so it's like, where can you make that leap to take a calculated risk if it's for the right reasons? In your book, you give some really cool examples on how companies have done this well. One, you talk about... Zara, which is a fashion brand, yes. and they were able to innovate through operations to allow them to scale. Can you give more color on what they did?
0: Absolutely, and Zara is a great example of how doing things differently can produce some pretty incredible results. So most of the fashion industry operates in the same way, which is to say they have a set of designers who create a set of designs based on the particular season, They go ahead and they order the inventory. They have it produced over in Asia where the costs are lower. They have it sent over on a boat, distributed out to the stores, and then you sell it. And if it doesn't sell, you put it on sale. And if it doesn't sell, then you put it in an outlet. And if it doesn't sell then, then you dump it into trash somewhere. (laughs) And in fact, one of the biggest costs in the fashion industry is the fact that there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't sell. By the way, that's the kind of stuff that I always buy because I'm like, hey, look, here we are at, at off Saks Off Fifth or, or, or Neiman Marcus Last Chance, and let me see if I can pick up some good stuff. So that's how most of the fashion industry works. And what Zara does is it turns everything on its head and it says, we are not concerned with the efficiency of producing an item of clothing for less money. We are concerned with the efficiency of making sure that we produce things that people want. And so how does their model differ? Well, first of all, they don't have this long cycle where they design a bunch of clothes for the season. What they have instead is people on the sales floors of the various Zaras report directly back up the line to headquarters and say, here are the things that are selling. Here's what people are asking for. The designers then immediately turn around and design clothing, usually that day to match the needs of what was asked for from the store. And instead of outsourcing their manufacturing over to India or Indonesia or China or something like that, they do their manufacturing in Spain where the company is actually based. And they're able to take clothes, which are called gray goods, which are clothing items that are sort of partially finished. And then they're able to very quickly with heavily automated factories that they own themselves, convert them into the finished goods. And so an idea that comes to someone on the sales floor that goes back up to headquarters might be back in that store in a week. And so you're meeting the demand where it is instead of producing stuff and hoping it sells, you're producing the stuff that, you know, people want. And that way, even though it costs them more to produce and it costs them more to ship because they're doing it, shipping it quickly. They're flying it via airplanes and everything like that because they don't have the problem of not being able to sell a third of the clothes they make. They are vastly more profitable than most of the companies in their industry.
1: Speed over efficiency. I mean, that's like a a amazing example. When you hit on that one, that made sense. I'm also interested in how people like change their offer or their business model to blitz scale. I don't know if you could give some examples on that because you kind of talk about Chesapeake Energy, where they had you know an epic kind of fall, but they did some amazing things on the rise. I'd love to hear on that. And then I have one I'm gonna try and stump you with, but I'll let you do that one first.
0: Ooh, I like the idea of stumping. So Chesapeake Energy is one of the ones in the book. So that makes it really easy to talk about. Chesapeake Energy was just a small uh, energy company, nothing to write home about. But what they were is one of the first to realize that the combination of two technologies, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, what's now known as fracking, could actually make these shale oil and gas deposits accessible in a way they weren't before. And horizontal drilling means they drilled a well down and then to the side to reach the point. And fracking means they pushed this fracking fluid into the drilled hole and it would crack open the sandstone and then the hydrocarbons would come out. And so all of these things meant that a bunch of deposits which were previously worthless, all of a sudden became, became enormously valuable. And what Chesapeake Energy did so cleverly was not just adopt the new technologies, but what they did is they realized the new technologies meant that there was a massive inefficiency in the pricing of mineral rights. And so they sent out an army of what are called landmen, just people to go out there, talk to farmers, sit down in their their living room and say, hey, listen, we want to get the mineral rights to the land beneath your farm and we'll give you $100,000 plus 10% of whatever comes out of the ground. the farmers like i thought this stuff was worthless a hundred thousand dollars where can i sign and so they went out and they bought up the mineral rights these leases are 99 year leases so they're effectively permanent right i don't worry about what's happening in 99 years i'll be dead so will you so they went out and they bought up all these leases and all of a sudden because fracking made that land valuable they could extract shale and gas out of the ground sell it and become huge so they went from small double digit millions up to a billion dollars in revenue In just a couple of years now the big problem is the story doesn't end there the founders did not learn the lesson the lesson they learned is they said our rule is buy land buy mineral rights at any price they did not think buy mineral rights when they're massively undervalued so they kept buying mineral rights at whatever price at prices where it was economically unviable and so they drove the company essentially into bankruptcy and that's an example of You don't want to blitz scale by accident. You don't want to blitz scale through what I call the cargo cult or a religious cult approach of like, oh, you know, we're just going to buy mineral rights. What are the costs? It doesn't matter. Why? Because that's what works. You have to know what the mechanism of action is. And if they knew what the mechanism of action was, then they would know, hey, you know what? The prices are no longer crazy. And now we got to take a different approach.
1: You eventually have to land that plane, like where it flips, where it's no longer about speed and you need to think about efficiency. But I thought, um, I mean, their approach out of the gate, what made so much sense. And I love that example because when I think of blitzscaling, we think a lot of like marketplaces, but you really got into some cool examples. So not one to like stump you on, but I'd be interested. How would you blitzscale an agency? Do you have any ah. examples you could speak to with a service-based business? You're so restricted on like, You can only grow with people. Do you have an example for that?
0: So when it comes to service-based businesses, the key way that people have grown in the past, it tends not to apply as much to the sort of higher-end service businesses, but it's franchising. right? The key problem is there's a fundamental cost to going ahead and hiring people. right? Your biggest cost is people, and you're essentially renting those people out in the form of services. And so it's hard to grow. There's a lot of capital commitment. Just makes it difficult. Franchising is the asset light approach to things. I mean, you may have seen this when you were in college. It's like, hey, wouldn't you like to run a college painting business or something? Oh,
1: I did actually. Worst summer ever.
0: (laughs) There you go. So (laughs) guess what? It's a miserable business. Isn't it better to get somebody like you to pay to run the business and have an asset light model Mm -hmm. than it is to run it yourself? So when it comes to services, the asset light model is typically what's been what works. I mean, it even applies in crazy ways to like hotels, right? The Four Seasons company doesn't own any hotels. It's just a management company. So there are ways to do it. I will say that you have to ask yourself, is that what I want to do? Because... You know, I think that probably one of the things that you enjoy is working with some pretty cool clients and having the direct exposure. And when you're in the franchising business, it's a very different business. You got to kind of dumb things down. And that may not be something that actually appeals to you. And I tell everyone, you know, the point of business is not to make the most money. The point of business is to live the life you want to live.
1: I agree. I'm I definitely drink the Kool-Aid of lifestyle design and trying to engineer your day from nine to five or whatever time frame to do something that brings you energy. Very cool. All right. Franchise Miller, I couldn't stump you, but that makes sense. Another thing that's interesting. So you're like, okay, let's do this. We're in blitzscaling mode. In the book, it talked about some counterintuitive things. You as a leader, whether it's a founder or the head of growth, the way you need to approach it when you're blitzscaling could differ from when you're in like a different time of growth. Could you give more advice on how people should approach that?
0: Yeah. So the key to blitzscaling growth is you're at a period of time where you want to grow faster than the competition in order to achieve some sort of strategic goal. And so there are some things that we talk about that are, frankly, sound kind of crazy that speak to that. So for example, we tell people, ignore your customers. Well, Jim, you run an agency. I'm pretty sure you don't ignore your customers. And it sounds like crazy talk. But what we mean by that is there are times when the current customers you have are not the customers you need in the future, and it may be that you have to ignore some of the feeling, some of the feedback they have for you because it's not appropriate, and because you need to do other things in order to be successful in the long run. Uh, one examples I use, I don't remember how I used it when we were in Seattle, but at LinkedIn when Reed was starting up LinkedIn, the most vocal users were the people who called themselves LinkedIn open networkers. And what they said is LinkedIn is great and we think it's awesome. And I think that I should accept every LinkedIn request that exists because the bigger the network, the better. And we was like, that's not actually the way we want people to use this product. In fact, what we want is something that is an accurate representation of someone's personal professional identity, but also their network. And people who just accept every single invitation that's not an accurate representation of the network. They reduced the signal from a LinkedIn connection to a vanishing point. And so there are a whole bunch of things that those LinkedIn open networkers who were the loudest and most heavy users of the platform wanted. And Re was like, ignore all of them. Don't antagonize them, but ignore them. Because they are not the customers of the future. We have to make sure that we are building for the people who are going to eventually be the source of money for this company, not just the people who are very loud right now.
1: Yeah. And, and it's hard to turn away active customers or, or users, but yeah, it makes sense. A, you gave a funny example and talked to around PayPal, how they would ignore all the angry phone calls coming in that were ringing throughout the office. So those are two really good examples. Another thing that you talk about is this idea of if I am in scaling mode, this idea of are you like on a pirate ship or are you on a Navy ship? And can you put more color to that? Because I think that can help people with their mindset when going into this.
0: Absolutely. So we call this the pirate to Navy transition. And the reason we talk about this is because there's this whole history of pirates. And it turns out that people love pirates. Pirates of the Caribbean, our flag means death. I mean, people have got this whole pirate renaissance going on right now. But where it really came into the technology industry was with Steve Jobs. And so Steve Jobs said, it's better to be a pirate than enjoy the Navy. And when he had his Macintosh division, he actually put them in a separate building and they made a special flag, a Jolly Roger flag that they flew above the building to indicate that they were pirates. Now, the fact that they were pirates did not mean that they were sociopaths who were stealing money and killing people, right? That's not what that kind of piracy is about. What it means is that you are a risk taker. You feel like you have nothing to lose. You're not bound by convention and you're willing to take risks and go places that other people aren't. And that's exactly what the Macintosh team ended up doing and built the graphical user interface, which is now sort of the basis of all computing. So mission accomplished. But being a pirate is great when you're taking those initial risks to figure out this brand new product, this brand new service, this thing, which is gonna be the basis of what we do. However, as you become established, all of a sudden the crazy risk-taking, the freewheeling, the no-rules approach, that's not going to work because you are no longer the gritty little pirate trying to create something that never existed before now you're apple with you know hundreds of thousands of employees and tens of billions or hundreds of billions of revenue and all these customers and now all of a sudden you can't just sort of have a bunch of people saying i'm going to do whatever i feel like now you got to be more like a navy where you're actually coordinating the actions of the fleet and you're like the admiral Setting the overall direction, you're not telling each individual boat, fire here, fire here. That's something that the individual captains have to handle. But you need a structure where you have an admiral and a set of captains and the ability to actually follow orders.
1: Yeah, it's so good because I think some early stage business owners or founders, myself included, you, you always have that like conquer mentality, but it doesn't always need to be wartime. It doesn't always need to be like, you know, burn the boats and storm the the island or whatever, but I by the way, really the
0: toughest thing about this is for the founder to follow their own rules. If you're like, we got to behave like a <laughs> Navy, but you know, every afternoon you like grab your cutlass and say, let's go for a spin. We're going to board that cup. We're going to board that treasure ship and loot it. Right. Everyone's yeah, like, yeah. Well, well, hold on for a second. You know, you're saying we want to be more like a Navy, but you're still a pirate. And people like <laughs> yeah. Travis Kalanick over at Uber. They might want the company to grow up, but they didn't want to grow up themselves.
1: Especially when you're really good at that phase, it's got to be hard to kind of turn that off, you know? So it's also knowing your skill set. So we're actually doing this through Zoom right now. I actually just thought this, this could be kind of interesting. This might totally flop, by the way, so I might pull this out. But I'm going to show you two of the startups we're launching. And I'm going to like talk about the blitz scaling ideas we have. And I want you to tell me if they're bad or if you like them or just kind of riff on them. Because we're really trying to be efficient with how we launch some of this. So this first one, this is one day design. And think of it, it's eight minute abs but for your website, we can design a page in 24 hours. So you kind of get that. You've got, and the inspiration for this was like Canva's doing a billion dollars a year. People desperately need design. We're good at design that converts. So here's the pitch: is we can do one web page design, a landing page. It could be your homepage, your product detail page, whatever in 24 hours for $12.99. We're testing this right now. We have like seven clients to see if we can pull it off. We're we're really good at operations. We're gonna hit a cap on how this scales, as you already know with service-based businesses, with productized service. But my thought is what I really care about is I don't care about the one-time landing pages. I'm down to like make zero money on this. What I care is the subscription where we do such a good job. They want the subscription product. So. My blitz scaling idea would be we could do this for $12.99, or I could take this down even more. So it's so insane. I can get something designed for, call it like 200 bucks, and have it done in 24 hours where this markets itself. But it only works if I can prove this eventually leads to this subscription where they're going to pay $5,000 for unlimited design. And then we also do dev, so it could be really sticky. But the thought is, do we just make an insanely irresistible offer where we're not making any money, but it's the ultimate legion to this product? I don't know if I, if I explained that well enough, but open oh, no, any did, thoughts or did. feedback on that.
0: Here's what I think. I think your intuition on that is correct. So the key to this one-day design is it is something that you intend to be remarkable. By remarkable, I mean, you want people to talk about it, right? This is Mm -hmm. a a huge thing. The whole principle behind it is not, do they need it in one day? I mean, do people really need the design in one day? It's a cool promise. It's mainly to get people talking. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you're trying to do. And you're betting on the fact that once they try it, they're going to say, wow, these people are great. I want to keep working with them. Because guess what? You know, you probably think to yourself right now, hey, when we do work for people, they love it. The problem is freaking getting them in the door. So what if we could find a way to get them in the door? Yeah. The way I would probably approach this is I would say one web page a month, $12.99 a month, pause any time. I would do something like $1,000 off your first month.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right?
0: Make it just seem insanely cheap. Now, you don't want it to be zero. The <laughs> yeah. is bad. Like if people are crazy and you need people to say, well, shoot, $2.99, why not? Now, I'll mm-hmm. give that a shot. $1,000 off the first month. And then from there, it's like, oh, well, I, I really want to do more. So that's the key, getting people on board to try it out and experience it. Now, again, that could go horrendously wrong. I mean, suppose you're overwhelmed. They never come back. Yeah. You learn that. Well, guess what? At least at that point, you've learned, hey, <laughs> it's just not the best idea. Because, right, you you went ahead, you built this out. But the beauty of it is it's not significantly different. It's not like you had to build a whole bunch of technology to do this. This is just a different offer. And so if the offer doesn't work, you can just junk it and say, well, that was an interesting idea. It didn't work out. But guess what? A lot of advertising campaigns don't work out.
1: Exactly. Because that's the thought. It's like you could put money into ads, a growth, or give it to the customers by making the product more and more affordable for them okay that was all by the
0: way you know if you think about this that's really how i do my business as a public speaker i don't worry about okay am i going to get the maximum amount of money out the first time or every single time Mm -hmm. my belief is that the more i speak the more people are going to say wow we need some of that and if the most important thing is to be able to get the exposure
1: yeah, just to get out there and the doors will open is the thought. Okay, nice. And then the the final one, and then I'll stop getting free advice, but this is kind of fun. So um, this is a a men's grooming product called Handsome Chaos. So women have dry shampoo. And so we made one for guys where it's a pomade. You put in your hair that if you go a day without showering, you put it in and it ideally looks like you took a shower. But we don't condone skipping showers. You should absolutely take showers. So um, so. <laughs> So the thought is okay. It's thirty bucks. Costs us basically five to make. Ordering a thousand units. Yep. I'm earmarking half of those or three hundred of those that I just want to give away, or use them as marketing rather than investing a bunch in ads. And so that could be giving them to people for doing a subscription. It could be let me seed the market to do an insane launch with a lot of influencers. Yep. So you're trying to use. The product is leveraged to, to get it out there because I just want to make enough money to then buy the next uh, round of inventory to prove this concept. So we've got like a waitlist of a thousand. We've pre-sold like 50 just to prove it. And now we're investing in inventory. But I mean, that's kind of my initial thought of blitzscaling is, is leveraging the product do some like epic referral campaign is what we're working on. And like Harry's had a great example where sign up to get on the wait list. And if you invite five friends, you get a free product, invite 10 friends, you get this. So that's some of the stuff we're thinking through, but open to any feedback on that concept or any other cool things you've seen with consumer brands.
0: So I do like the idea of getting people to refer others in exchange for free product. I always am a big believer in referrals for product, referrals for free product, because that means they actually want your product, right? People have things like referrals for money. And guess what? Everyone wants money. You want people who actually are referring folks that uh, you think will be long-term users of it. So I like that idea quite a bit. The other thing I like is trying to figure out if there's some way to get people to use it and post about it, and it could be influencers or it could Love be that. ordinary folks. And I guess the question is, uh, are there any other distribution channels where people can use this? Like, for example, let's say uh, this, this, may not be, may, this may not make sense, but let's say you have a, a pop-up. You're like, okay, here I am outside the hottest dance clubs or whatever nightlife places in Seattle. And I'm like, hey, guess what? We've got this, we, you, can, you can come here and pomade your hair for free. Here's the mirror. Here's the lights. Here's a stylist, that sort of thing. And, you know, get people excited about this, get, their, get buzz going about it so that people are like, hey, because, you know, let's face it, when are people going to need this? Well, they're going to need this when they need to look good. They're going to need this when they don't have time to go home and, and primp and crimp themselves up. And so that sounds to me like right outside the club is the perfect time to hit them up with it.
1: I love the idea of the offline activation, and then you could get the get them to get content out of it. So you get user generated content that could be posted. So that's all you would ask them to do to get this free experience.
0: Maybe maybe you even convince you know a a, fr- a cl- friendly club owner who's a friend of yours or something like that. You know, in addition to everything else, it's like by the way, you know, we're doing some sort of hair beauty contest inside at the club everyone gets their photo taken and posted on the facebook page or the or the snapchat page what are you i don't know all the details here and then people vote and at the end of the night whoever gets the mm. most vote wins some sort of prize at the club
1: yeah and what's nice is you're leveraging their audience to get exposure and it's making noise for them right to do exactly. something interesting that's very cool Again, I think it's a,
0: I think it's a cool idea. I, I have no idea how it works. My hair is not long enough for me to <laughs> do it. But I can tell if I had a fine long head of hair like you, like you,
1: Jim, I might
0: be like, he need get, get some of this stuff.
1: All right, well, let's grow it out. We'll send you a free care package. That'll be great. And then we'll design you a website for free in 24 Thank hours. That'll be great.
0: Actually, <laughs> I got I to ask now I'm fascinated. Is this based on an existing product that women use and we just, you know, put a different fragrance in it? What is the secret behind it?
1: So women use this thing called dry shampoo. I like, I grew up my hair and my hair is getting oily. I was like, I can't use my normal gel. It just looks horrible. And my wife's like, oh, you don't know about dry shampoo? I'm like, no. And it's like every girl's secret. It's like they have this spray. It's essentially powdered sugar you put in your hair that makes it dry. And oh. so you can use it, but it, it, it gets on your shoulder. So I made it a pomade form. So it's what guys are used to using. And um, yeah, it kind of blew my mind.
0: That is really clever. Well, I hope that this sucker takes off. Uh, I do agree that, you know, look, it seems like, again, this is a young person's thing. Like old people, they already got their approach to it, whatever it is. I don't know if it's Brittle (laughs) Creek or what have you from the madman. Who knows? But the young people are still waiting to figure this out. And they do seem to love their influencers. So I like the influencer idea as well.
1: Yeah. No, we'll so I'll, I'll keep you posted. I need to go to the, the blood scaling Academy to really pull this thing off. So like we've got all these crazy ideas, but like, you've got to be a really good leader to get the right talent to pull this off. And you wrote a book called the Alliance where like right now I'm trying to create this new place to work where it's, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that want to work at a company, but want to be able to do their own thing. And I read your book and it really made me rethink about how we structured things with this idea of a, a tour of duty. Could yeah. you just talk about the alliance and what what you talk about with these tour of duties that are transformative and what are foundational?
0: Absolutely. So the core thing we talk about is the fact that the nature of the employment relationship has changed and it's changed even more since the book came out in 2014. The idea that people are gonna join a company and just work for that company for 40 years and then retire is crazy. Nobody believes that anymore. Nobody even believes that for their children, especially. And so, well, how do we actually build some sense of loyalty? Because it's also not a good thing to just switch jobs every three months. You're not gonna be particularly productive that way either. And so we have this notion of a tour of duty, which is you have a specific mission you're trying to accomplish, and that mission is gonna help the company with its business objectives, but accomplishing that mission is also gonna help you, the employee, advance your career. And that is the whole concept behind the tours of duty. And we talk about a transformational tour of duty because ideally, this tour of duty is gonna transform the nature of your career. Like after you finish it, it might take a year, it might take two years, who knows, the set of things that you are eligible to do that people will hire you to do becomes that much bigger and you've expanded your sphere of possibilities. Now, the interesting thing is the world has changed so much since 2014, right? We've now had a much bigger rise of the gig economy and other things like that. We've gone through this global pandemic. People are talking about hybrid work. And before we started recording, you were saying, oh, yeah, we need you to, to write a new version of the of the Alliance. Well, the good news is Reed and I were just talking this past weekend, and we were saying it seems like we should do a second edition of the Alliance. It's going to be the 10-year anniversary. Reid just put out a 10-year anniversary edition of the Startup Review. We should do a 10-year anniversary edition of the Alliance that talks about this new world with the gig economy and talks about dealing with the hybrid workplace.
1: I think a lot of people would love to hear that because for me, like we've always been remote, remote first. And then we have these other companies all of a sudden aren't remote first, they're remote forced. And they're like, our advantage goes away to get talent. So now I'm trying to get more innovative in in how to get the right people. So um, now I I think a lot of people are trying to figure out that balance. I, I think it'd be very well received.
0: And by the way, I mean, part of what I think is the secret is what I would call work design. How do you design work so the work itself is fulfilling and rewarding, right? People at all along say, hey, we want these perks. We want these, you know, foosball tables, nap pods, you name it. I'm like, yeah, those things help. But you know what really helps? Work that doesn't suck. And can we think <laughs> about how work is constructed such that it actually is more enjoyable for folks and especially is more enjoyable for them to do it in person? Because the answer to getting people in the office is not mandating and say, leave or you're fired. Because guess what? A lot of people are like, guess what? I quit. It is instead saying, hey, here's what you're missing out on if you don't come back in. And you don't have to come back in every single day. Guess what? Not every single moment in the office before the pandemic was a peak experience, let me tell you. (laughs) But if we do have peak experiences occurring at the office, people are going to feel like they're missing out. They're going to come back.
1: Yeah, that's really well said. And so, Chris, there's one question I always like to end with um, that I ask everybody, and it's what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? kind of looking back, if you had to like pin it down to one story or one thing, what what would it be? Wow. that
0: is so tough because there are so many examples of people who have helped me over the years in so many ways. I certainly count myself as incredibly lucky. Uh, I mean, even just getting a chance to to work with my co-author who, is a brilliant guy is, is obviously a, a huge win. But in terms of like something that is really nice, something that is really unexpected, this wasn't maybe the nicest thing that ever happened to me, but it is really illustrative of something. So I worked for D.E. Shaw and company. And at one point, there was one day when the one of the top executives at the firm came up to visit our office. And it was like a, hey, you know, we're here to put you back on schedule, like Darth Vader at uh, the Death Star kind of thing, right? It's a guy who a lot of people were frankly terrified of, uh, not because he was mean, he didn't yell or anything like that, but because he was so smart and so forceful that people were like, oh my God, I'm scared of this guy. And so all of the people in the office are gathered and you have to remember, this is in the late 1990s, so it's a very different world at this point. And so... We're all gathered together, and he's like, Hey, I really need people to work late tonight. And I said, You know, I'm sorry, I, I can't do it. It's like, Oh, what, what's going on? It's like, Well, you know, I have this ballroom dance class I signed up with with my girlfriend, and it's starting in 20 minutes. She's already left her office. She's already on her way over there. I We don't have cell phones at this point in time. There's no way for me to tell her, Hey, honey, I got to stay late at the office. I don't want her to show up to our Ballroom dance lesson, and not have me there, worry about me, not know what's going to happen. And, you know, this is like pretty scary. I mean, everyone's terrified of this guy. And Here I am saying, I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't know if I can work late. I need to go to a ballroom dance class with <laughs> my girl. awesome." And he says, oh, I did ballroom dance in college. He actually did a slight twirl. And he said, go, go, go. You don't need to be here. And so I left. And again, you know, was it the kindest thing that's ever happened to me in my career? Maybe not, but it made a big impression on me. Uh, It made a big impression on me because it said, you know what? Even the people that everything thinks are the most terrifying folks in the world are human beings, Mm -hmm. have their own sets of feelings, have their own experiences. And even somebody who is known for being ruthless and terrifying can show compassion and grace, and it didn't impact my career negatively. My career at D.E. continued to go swimmingly after that. Yeah. Probably there was, nothing, there was nothing that big about me missing that particular meeting. I'm sure they didn't come up with any giant grand strategies that completely changed mm-hmm. everything overnight. And what it revealed is, you know what? Live life. Ask for what you want. And you never know. If you have been doing a great job of helping people, they'll usually give it to you.
1: And I think the fact that you had the confidence to say that, because I think if I, because I used to work in investment banking and I know that type of presence that comes into the office, I don't know if I would have had the confidence to say that. And I just would have created a a fight with my girlfriend because I was too scared to say anything. But that's, that's really cool. But yeah, at the end of the day, everybody's human. Everybody gets it. Um, That's a really funny story. (laughs) Uh, I
0: will always remember it. As you can tell, it made an impression on me because I was terrified. I was like, what if I am flushing my career down the toilet right now? But I'm like, you know what? I am not going to let her show up to that class and not know where I am.
1: Yeah. Some other dude with good moves would slide in. And yeah, you, you don't never wanna, know. You want it's, that very <laughs> it's very dangerous.
0: Very dangerous.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have oh, two but... kids today
0: now. And our daughter is graduating from high school on the first. So, you know, obviously the right choice.
1: You mean, yeah, you made the right move. Who knows? Yeah, she'd be with some ballroom dancing savant in, in Argentina or something. Um,
0: <laughs> watch out for those tango masters.
1: <laughs> they'll get you. They'll get you. Oh, man, that's awesome. Chris, this is so fun. Where can people go? If they want to learn more about you, if they want to go deeper on blitz scaling and a lot of the frameworks that you have, um, where can they find out more? So of
0: course, where you can always learn about me is you can go to chrisye.com. that's C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com, Y-E-H as in yellow elephant house. Now you'll have that vision in your head forever. And that's where you'll find out about me, books, speaking, other things that are going on, my various social media coordinates. You can generally find me at Chris Ye everywhere because I try to jump in and sign up for things relatively quickly. And then if you're really interested in blitzscaling, Of course you can buy the book it's available everywhere but we also have the blitz scaling academy which is just at blitzscalingacademy.com where we have extensive you know like 50 70 100 hours of online courses a whole community of people who really are into understanding how to scale their companies and work together to do so
1: that's awesome yeah the book Even rereading it, it, it's, it's, it's pretty timeless. It's really strong. But Chris, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep. We have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com.